Welcome back to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. It's been a pretty eventful week with the United States Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. There are a variety of emotions for people in this decision, especially within the church. With that, I've included Ben's words on this topic as well as his prayer, which came before the sermon. And then immediately following the prayer, the sermon starts, and we are looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. The question to be thinking about going into the sermon is, what does it mean to be following Jesus fully? The text sounds pretty harsh at first glance, but it makes sense when we dive into the deeper meaning of what it means to follow something or someone. I think we have tended to equate following Jesus with simply believing that Jesus accomplished atonement for our sins on the cross. At least, that's how I once would have thought about what it means to follow Jesus and possibly have been taught in the, in the past. However, what we will hear from Ben is that following Jesus is much more holistic and formative than mere intellectual belief about something or some idea. And with this in mind, another question to ask while listening will be, what or who am I following? What or who is shaping me as a person? I'm sure you'll get some good insight from this sermon. So let's get to it. If you haven't noticed, our our world is going through a lot right now, amen? A lot right now. Um, and you know, throughout the week when big things happen in the world, I get flooded with messages on my email, social media, all of these things. And there's, there's this expectation that pastors are supposed to have all the answers to things. And, you know, I think that's actually been part of the problem, (laughs) is that we Christians think that we have all the answers to everything. And then that leads us to taking power and control where maybe we should listen instead. Um, And our, our culture has continued, as I've preached in countless sermons, our culture, our reputation in our culture is not good. We continue to see Christians in mainstream public eye taking power and control and using Christ's name to exert power over people rather than come up behind them and lift them up. And so I'm not going to tell you what to think about certain huge issues in our world today, but I do, as your pastor, want to invite you to one thing regarding the issue of abortion I want to invite you to compassion. If the one thing that the world sees from Christians right now, they need to see compassion. Let me just remind you of a few statistics. Almost 25% of women in the United States have had an abortion by the age of 45. That means if you have more than four female friends, remember whatever comments you make publicly you will likely have a friend who's experienced or gone through an abortion. An even more startling statistic is that 24% of patients who've had abortions in our country identify as Catholic. 
17% identify as mainline Protestants, and 13% identify as evangelical Protestants. That means that over the majority of people who have had abortions, 54% in our country have happened to women within a Christian church. Why is this? Because talking to my Christian friends who've had abortions, it's largely because the church shames women who get pregnant in ways that they disagree with. So they quietly go about changing their own lives to suit their reputation with the church. My friends, we could do so much to reduce abortion in our world if the church would confront how it shames women. If we could just do something about the shame culture that we have built around women. We didn't even allow women to vote until 1920. We have a problem with acknowledging the rights of women in our culture. I want to invite you to compassion over the conversations regarding hot button issues today. So as we pray for these things, know that this is a complex situation, but we need to be a people of compassion. Isn't that something that we can all agree with this morning? Be a people of compassion. Let me pray for us this morning. There are people that are so scared right now in our culture. So scared. As you know, we here at the Cathedral of the Rockies, we are an inclusive church and on the docket after Roe v. Wade was overturned, there are plans for overturning same-sex marriage as well, legal contraception, and other issues too. My friends, there are a lot of fear in our culture right now. And we want to pray that we can be a people of compassion and pursue justice. Let me pray for us this morning in this, this time that is so, so unprecedented. Jesus, we are so inspired by those who have given everything to follow you. Not just the missionaries or evangelists, but God, the single parents, the elderly saints, young students, all who go through daily life devoted to the goodness of your love, peace, mercy, and justice. God, we know it isn't easy following you towards those ideals, that we have experienced rejection and betrayal along the way like you have. It is not an easy journey, but we hold fast to the hope that as we travel this road with you, seeking your kingdom first, there will be peace and joy in the journey. Lord God, I pray over the entire church in America right now that when we pursue change in our culture, it will look like Jesus taking up his cross and less like Caesar taking up the sword. So that, Lord, when we pursue change, it is not through the ways of power and control, but through humility, wisdom, compassion, and lifting up the most vulnerable in our culture. Would you make a change within us, Lord God, so that our culture sees a people of love, of truth, and of justice? Help us to keep our eyes on you and let us be an encouragement to one another. I want to invite you to pray the prayer that Christ taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And help us not fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. And again, I have... Um, I have want to invite you to ponder these words from Christ. And we, we're asking a question this morning. What does it mean to follow Jesus fully, to be all in in pursuit of Christ? Well, let's listen to these words. Luke chapter 9, the, the text should be on the screen behind me. Uh, listen to these words. And pay close attention to how the disciples respond. Whenever you read a passage and you read about good religious people, whether it's Pharisees, teachers of the law, disciples, you know who we're supposed to see ourselves as? The disciples, the Pharisees, because we're the good religious people today, right? And so as we read scriptures, listen, pay close attention to how the disciples respond. It's really, really interesting. Verse 51, at the time approached when Jesus was to be taken up into heaven, he determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him. Along the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the Samaritan villagers refused to welcome Jesus because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Interesting. I wonder why. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and spoke sternly to them. The Greek is rebuked. He turned and rebuked the disciples and they went on to another village. As Jesus and his disciples traveled along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nests, but the human one has no place to lay his head. Then Jesus said to someone else, follow me. And he replied, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the good news of God's kingdom. And someone else said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those in my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. This is the written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is all super clear, cut and dry meaning, right? Just face value. And then we can just go home and have lunch now, right? This is the task preachers are faced with sometimes to make clarity of text that meant something profound back then, but we need to uh, work to understand their meaning for today. Our reading from Luke this week is made up of two distinct parts, if you notice that. First, Jesus is traveling to a Samaritan village, and then these conversations with would-be disciples, people who want to follow him, but there seems to be a, I'll follow you, but right, in every response of those disciples. So we're going to look at those two sections just a little bit deeper this morning. That first section where Jesus is traveling through a Samaritan village is, uh, an ex might be taken as an example of, well, if they're not with us, they're against us. And this really isn't the way that we're supposed to read those verses. Luke tells us that Jesus wasn't accepted because he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was why the Samaritans didn't accept him. 
It's really helpful to remember when reading these verses who the Samaritans were and still are. They're relatives of what becomes eventually the Jewish people. We might call them second cousins once removed from Judaism. When Israel divided itself into to two kingdoms in 922 BC and the kingdoms broke apart and were eventually destroyed, what was left behind was in the northern kingdom whose capital was in Samaria. And this was a group of Yahweh-worshiping believers who had their own version of the Pentateuch and worshiped in their own temple on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. Starting to build the reason why they kind of had a bad taste for Jerusalem's temple. They already had their temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim. Even in Jesus' day, the Samaritans thought that proper worship of the Lord looked like worshiping in the temple in Mount Gerizim. A dear friend who's been passed away for a while now, he would always joke with me after service and say, he reminded me of George a lot, uh, his sense of humor. So if you know George, you know what this joke is going to sound like. But he would always come up to me after my sermons and he'd be like, you know, we should never get upset when people worship God differently than we do. They can worship God their way and we can worship God God's way. But it was, it was like that for both Israel and Samaritans. And you know what, friends? Not a lot has changed with religious people. We really feel like the worship of God looks this certain way. It's in this certain place and it sounds a certain way. And it keeps us from coming together sometimes. So when these Samaritans learned that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, they're immediately put off because they're traveling to worship in Jerusalem rather than on Mount Gerizim. And one may think of John's gospel, you know, the, uh, the uh, Samaritan at the well, the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. And she says to Jesus at the well, John chapter four, verses 19 through 20, she says, uh, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say the place of worship for the people is in Jerusalem. It's an ongoing conversation, even in Christ's day. So the tension here is more so pointed between Samaritans and Israelites so much so that it ruffles the feathers of James and John. Now, I want to describe to you how Israelites felt about Samaritans real quick. They had a custom. They thought Samaritans were so unclean because of their worship practices. They had a custom of burning plates and utensils after a Samaritan touched them. Much like how they viewed the dead. And so when Jesus comes along and gives a parable about a good what do you think the people listening to that would think about? Who are the Samaritans today that the church often calls abhorredly unclean? And are the, the stranger, those people that we wouldn't go around? Jesus uses the Samaritan as an example of serving others, that God can use anyone, even the people we think don't belong in God's service. So, Jesus, this rejection of the Samaritans makes John, James and John really mad, if you can't tell. 
It really ruffled their feathers. And they reacted in a very measured and calm and graceful way, a way that's not dramatic at all. They responded to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? <laughs> That's quite a statement, right? I, I think there's a whole sermon in that one statement from the disciples. First, that's pretty arrogant to think that you have that much control over the power of God to just smite whomever you want to at a moment's notice. Jesus, do you want me to call fire from heaven down to consume those people? They rejected you. I don't agree with them. I've always thought they're unclean anyways. Let's just, fall, let's just get rid of them, right? That's pretty arrogant. And sometimes it's tempting to think that simply because we walk with God, the power of God is ours, to do with as we please. That's a common temptation for disciples. Secondly, this is a picture of religious fundamentalism. They disagree with us, therefore they must be evil. You can't just disagree. <laughs> they must be completely evil and God must do away with them completely. If they don't accept Jesus, therefore they must be destroyed. That was the theology I was raised with. People weren't just people who disagreed with us. They were evil if they disagreed, saw the world differently. Lastly, what about Jesus makes his disciples think that obliterating people is a part of the gospel? Was it healing the sick? Was it going along? Was it multiplying loaves and bread? What part of Christ's earthly ministry made his disciples think, yeah, we're on the way to call down fire from heaven and consume all these sinners? No, Jesus wasn't crucified because of the condemnation of sin. John 3, 17, I did not come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You all get brownies. Save the world. I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus was crucified by good religious people who wanted to condemn sinners, and he was about forgiving them. It was the forgiveness of sins that Jesus was about. Was it about loving your enemies that made his disciples think we should obliterate them? Was it the talk of turning the other cheek, going the extra mile? Should we call fire down from heaven to consume them? What a phrase. My friends, this is why I sometimes call the disciples the disciples. Because <laughs> sometimes they just don't get it, right? But sometimes we are guilty of being disciples ourselves. I'm guilty of being a disciple sometimes. I think it's easy to define judgment and control as being all in for God, as if we know all of God's answers and power, rather than being and living in humility, compassion, and love. Well, true to form, after, after the disciples responded in this very measured, non-dramatic way, Jesus rebukes them for this outrageous intentions of destroying the Samaritans. And I love the phrase, he rebukes them and they moved on. Did he rebuke the Samaritans? No, Jesus is like, okay, I'm not gonna be received here. Why don't we go somewhere else where I might be received? Right? In peace. 
and brought the disciples with them and their ruffled feathers along the way. Jesus has come for the redemption of the world, not the condemnation of the world. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world, not fiery death upon those who reject him. In Luke, Jesus bypasses this tension altogether, ignoring it, and kept his face towards Jerusalem, where Jesus has something to accomplish, the salvation for the whole world. This setting of Jesus' face towards uh, Jerusalem has more um, meaning for Scripture. It's, it's a phrase that's used all throughout the Bible. Setting your face towards something means identity or intentionality. Whatever you set your face towards, that is what is going to shape and define you, right? So sometimes I'm shaped and defined by Netflix because my face is set towards Netflix. Or when your face is set towards something really good, like exercise, your face is set towards exercise and, and making yourself healthy. I was in the gym when I was a brand new pastor. I was in the gym one time and struck up a conversation with somebody. And one day he said, you know, the gym is my church. I am here religiously. And I just made a joke. I said, oh, so you're only here Christmas and Easter? <laughs> he thought that was pretty funny. But whatever you set your face towards, religion, it's, it has some bad connotations, but its fundamental definition is what is your most dominant habit? Is it prayer? Is it fasting? Is it meditation? Is it loving your neighbor? Those dominant habits start to shape who you are, right? And that's why we want to devote ourselves to scripture study and prayer and the habits of our faith so that religiously we are a people who love others well, right? That's our religion. God is love and we want to see be, be seen as loving. So Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Why? As he predicted countless times, but the disciples didn't hear him well, he's going to give himself as a sacrifice for the world so that the world can be set free from sin. That is why he's heading towards Jerusalem for the deliverance of the world. And it says it perfectly in Isaiah 50. Let me just read these ser servant song to you from Isaiah 50. See who it sounds like. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult or spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, Isaiah 50. So this setting of one's face to Jerusalem is the culmination of all of who Christ is and who he has come to be. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem, and yet he sets his face with resolute obedience and faithfulness. Well, this connection helps us to understand that second section. Jesus is setting his face forward to Jerusalem, which is foretelling his death and his resurrection. And it helps us to understand what he's calling for in his disciples. He also wants disciples who have their faces set towards his goals as well. To be all in as he is all in, for the deliverance of the world. 
So the first someone approaches Jesus and says that they will follow Jesus wherever you go. And Jesus responds with that really ambiguous, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. <clears throat> That's another way of saying it's going to get real rough. Are you sure you want to follow me? I'm heading towards Jerusalem and I'm going to take a cross for the world and I want to have my disciples take up their crosses too. We're going to be roughing it together. Are you sure you want to follow me? And the second person comes along and says, uh, I'll follow you, but first things first, let me go and, and, and bury my father. And Jesus responds with something. I don't know if you felt the same way, but when he responds, let the dead bury their own dead, I'm just like, ow, that's not very kind, right? Well, in that, that day and age, when they, he was talking about a spiritual reality, who were so locked in, in, in this spiritual reality that they were just doing the same things and they would not come and deliver the world with him. So let the dead bury their own dead is a metaphor for that. His father was most likely not near death's door. He was, um, he was most likely saying, I need to stay until my father dies. And he was probably third. His father was probably in his 30s or 40s. So that's quite a while to wait to die before following Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem right now. <laughs> let them do what they will do. Let, let the dead bury their own dead and come follow me now. Then the last phrase can also feel pretty unfeeling. Let me go say goodbye to my entire household. Well, a farewell ceremony again would take about three weeks in Israelite custom. And Jesus is saying, I'm going now. <laughs> I'm heading to Jerusalem right now. Those who set their hands to the plow but look back don't really have a place of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is coming when? Now. So I need you to follow me now. And really all of those questions for discipleship that we hear in this passage is like Jesus saying, I need your family relationships. I need your priorities. I, I need all of your life to be all in by the goodness and grace and mercy of God that you're going to see lifted up in Jerusalem. It's not that you're cutting those family members off or you're not, you're not serving your parents and, and taking care of them when they, they get old and they die. It means that love, to love them deeply and well, will only happen when you're all in for the love of God and love of neighbor. The relationships will only be what they are meant to be when love is at the core. My friends... Over the last few years, I missed one little part. These two stories seem to mean two very related things for us. First, that Jesus' messianic intention is serious and it is full. There are no half measures for Jesus. He loves us that much. Amen? Jesus is all in in loving us. And so there are no half measures for Jesus when it comes to his disciples either. We must be all in for loving him and our neighbors in the world. So to be fit for the kingdom is to be committed as fully as possible to set our faces towards the love of Jesus, the justice of Jesus, the peace of Christ, and to not turn away no matter how ugly things become.
My friends, over the last few years, our culture has heard far too much ugliness from Christians in the public eye. They have heard more, they have sounded more like James and John, wanting to call down fire from heaven to those who disagree with them or who they believe to be sinners. Whole groups of people are just condemned from the pulpit. I don't know if you heard this recently, but a pastor from Boise, his sermon went viral because he called for the death of LGBTQ people from his pulpit, from his pulpit. And that wasn't the only sermon I heard that weekend from a pastor. I'm on the part of the uh, faith equality board with fellow faith leaders, and 31 of us published a response to that sermon in the Boise Weekly. You can go read all about it. But it, my friends, it was appalling. This still happens today. Our culture hears people calling themselves Christians, wanting to call fire down from heaven on those they believe to be sinners. That is not the reputation we are supposed to have as Christians. Jesus rejects this unholy attitude within his disciples during his lifetime, and he does so still today. We are called to work towards restoration, humility, and compassion that we see in Jesus, where even our political involvement is motivated by love for others rather than for the desire of power and control. My friends, will you join me in being all in for the love, peace, mercy, justice, and salvation that we see in Christ Jesus. Will you join me on that journey this morning? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you give us this clear direction from Christ our Lord on what love looks like. Jesus rejected that unholy desire to consume the Samaritans. And God, you did that same in Jonah who wanted to smite the Ninevites. You are a God who consistently seeks for redemption in the world. Lord God, I ask for your disciples to be all in for that redemption as well. My friends, I've written a confession and pardon for us this morning. Would you read this confession with me together as we prepare our hearts for communion. God, we struggle to manifest the fruits of the Spirit, but often we find ourselves bound by works of the flesh. We know the whole law is summed up in a single commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet we create fences around ourselves to keep neighbors outside and tell ourselves we have no responsibility even in our own backyard, we bite and devour one another. We wish it were different. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we find every excuse to instead go home or to the workplace to finish something more important first. Yet we yearn to be more centered on you. Would you receive this pardon from God as an acceptance of the places in which we may not have put love fully first 
in our lives. The good news of the gospel is that we can always pursue goodness better today than we did yesterday. So would you read this pardon with me? God, despite our resistance, we can be assured that God's strong arm redeems the people. God calls us back to God's realm and encourages us with a love we can never lose, no matter how hard we push back, no matter how often we forget, no matter how far we stray, we need but ask and we are forgiven. Amen. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to, we would very much appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, since we are a smaller church here at Amity Campus, we run on a pretty tight budget. If you are feeling called to give, then there will be a link in the show notes on how you can do that. Of course, no pressure, only if you're really feeling called to it. But more income does potentially mean more increasing our content and quality of content, as well as supporting the ministries we have here at Amity and the ones we love to get off the ground. Otherwise, we will see you in the next episode. Have a wonderful rest of your day.